Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Kyle Marshur and myself take a look at some of the articles that appeared in Compliance Week in August, explore what's coming up for Compliance Week in September, take a look at some great upcoming Compliance Week in-person and virtual events, and take a deep dive into some really interesting sports questions that have been on our minds for the past several weeks. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to From the Editor's Desk, the podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which either have or will appear in Compliance Week. Look at some of the top compliance stories and talk some sports, and most importantly, try to solve some of the world's problems. Most of them, in fact. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. I'm once again thrilled to join Tom and take a look back at some of the top stories from Compliance Week in August, preview stories for September, and like Tom said, we'll talk some sports and solve all of your issues. Kyle, what were some of the top stories that CW reported on and wrote about in August, or ones that maybe just struck you as significant? Yeah, Tom, it was a bit of a slower month. These summer months always tend to be that way, as a lot of folks are on vacation, including those at the regulators, so things can tend to crawl, but it actually picked up quite a bit in the latter portion of the month. In that last full week of August, we saw the first enforcement action brought, the first public enforcement action brought under the CCPA, which has been awaited for a long time now. The law went into effect in 2020 and has the California Attorney General has been preferring to work with companies to resolve the issues that they've encountered, which always is a great way to go. But we finally had an example of a company that was not able to resolve its issues within the 30-day cure period and was fine. So the company being Sephora, that type of enforcement action can really lead to a lot of ripples now that we have one under the CCPA and ready to go. But it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. So that story came out late. We also had the, for Compliance Week, we do cover accounting and audit. We had the the PCAOB reaching agreement with Chinese regulators regarding access to audits from firms based in. So that's going to be one that's going to be on our radar for the months ahead. There's a very tight deadline for the PCAOB to get its work done in China before the end of the year, before it can make its determination regarding compliance with the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. Another one that'll be on our radar moving ahead here. And then some of the other stuff we were monitoring is there's been something of a developing story regarding banks that are being fined for unauthorized use of messaging apps, such as WhatsApp. Bankers that have been carrying out business on WhatsApp, and that does not create a paper trail that regulators can look at. It became a pretty big fad during the pandemic when communication was a little bit more strained. The expectation there is a lot of those enforcement actions will come down before the end of the government's fiscal year at the end of September. So that's something we're keeping an eye on. I was really interested in the way you opened around August, and perhaps it slowed down a little this year. Over the past couple of years, it hasn't. And that was, I think, directly related to the pandemic. So could this be one more indicia that perhaps things were, will never go back to the way they were, but towards a more of a normal, at least in terms of a cadence of stories in the compliance world? 
Yeah, I know myself. I got out more this August, certainly, than I did last August. Um, I do think that there was some play in that. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the staff there to bring the enforcement actions, do the investigations, then it really the, the nothing really comes together. In the past couple of years, there really hasn't been much of a reason to get away in August. But this year, now with things loosening up a little bit, I think we found that that those things were grinding a little bit slower. I think I'm just making an assumption. I don't, people don't check with me at the regulators before they go on vacation, but as an observer, it just seemed like things slowed down. And yeah, it's, I think it's a bit of a reflection of a, a regression to the norm. I think all of us in our personal lives probably feel a little bit closer to where we were in 2019 here in 2022 than where we were at last summer. So it's nice to see and then nice to have that experience, but. Yeah, it definitely, I don't know, news, uh, you can never really predict it. I could say the August is a slow time and then next August can be the craziest month. Just can't really ever put a finger on it. The only reason regulators aren't banding your name about is because they're just, you're now part of compliance week. So their first question is, what does compliance week think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You also brought up a really interesting point, and it ties into your third story about banks announcing they think they're going to be fined or potential fines or reserving money for fined for ephemeral messaging, particularly in WhatsApp. Many commentators, including I think you guys, have said uh, they're really pointing towards the end of September because that's the end of the government's fiscal year. And that really brings up the question about September. In my world, my former world of being a lawyer, after Labor Day, there was an explosion of stories of work, different things that would happen that people have been saving up for the summer. And that kind of went to maybe late, late November, early December. But with the fiscal year ending and the regulators scrambling to try to get enforcement action settled, do you really anticipate having Really just a plethora of stories in addition to the potential banks' fines that we mentioned? Yeah, for us, every September is pretty much all hands on deck. That's one of our busiest months of the year. And it's for the exact reason, like you mentioned, these regulators are, they have financial goals they need to meet just as much as every company and everything like that. So they really try to get a lot of this stuff in right up to the wire. And it's not all enforcement actions as well. It's also whistleblower payouts are always really big in the month of September. Any Anything that these regulators are doing that's fairly time sensitive and that's going to be reported against as part of their fiscal year metrics, because those reports will be made available to the public and to Congress by the end of the year, all of that tends to come together in a bit of a scramble. So you're going to see a lot of, of significant fines always come this time of year, especially when it's something where this is a pretty, the banking apps thing, it's a pretty cut in, in enforcement crackdown. I think Pretty much from what we've seen so far and based on company disclosures, every major bank got caught up in it. And it's the, it's the same thing. And it's a pretty probably not too difficult for the SEC to prove that it happened. And the CFTC as well, they're involved in it. So you're going to see a lot of these penalties coming down based on the disclosures we've seen are going to be for $200 million. And that's the sort of precedent that was set when JP Morgan was fined for this last. So these settlements are all going to basically follow the same structure. It's a pretty cut and dry case for the agencies. So at this point, it's just a matter of dotting the I's, crossing the Are there any other stories that either you've been following or stories you've been working on internally that may come out in September you can share with us? Yeah, one story we actually had come to fruition in August that I do believe I had mentioned previously is we worked with Mia Rainey, who's the head of compliance at Home Depot, to take a look at some of the changes that she has made during her to her compliance program during the pandemic. Home Depot, they took that opportunity to revamp some of their compliance training around the Department of Justice's evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Basically, they created a form of guidance that answered the questions that the DOJ's guidance posed. 
So just in case the DOJ ever came knocking and said, can you prove that you do this? They have documentation already ready to go that says, if the DOJ asks you this question, here's what you can tell them. That was a real tremendous story that came together. Big thanks to Mia for going through that and letting us see that documentation, which was an internal document at Home Depot. So our writer, Aaron Nicodemus, was able to look through that and pull out some of the lessons that other companies might take as they're looking to do the same thing. So that story was able to come together in August and is one that was very popular on our site. We always are taking advantage of those type of opportunities to offer a glimpse at what one company is doing in the hopes that maybe someone else can get something out of that. For September now, looking ahead, we're in the process of wrapping up our fall print magazine. So that should be going out to some of our members and subscribers in September. The theme of the issue is how regulators are confronting areas of emerging technologies. We talked previously of this crackdown on unauthorized messaging apps, and that's just one example of a type of technology that has prompted response and strong response from U.S. regulators. So some of the other stories that we expect to have as part of the session is we'll do something covering the current crypto landscape, which obviously seems to evolve every week or so, but obviously a lot of complaints there regarding the lack of regulatory clarity. And then also taking a look at artificial intelligence, which is another very popular subject in terms of how will regulators approach it and what are some of the pitfalls to avoid. So the general idea and theme of the report is basically going to be the balancing act between risk and reward with technologies, the reward of being able to automate certain functions or being able to access more data, but the risk of acknowledging that some of these regulatory waters can be murky and sometimes the best intentions can lead to violations. So those will, that will be coming together in September. At this point, we, we have about, I'd say we're about midway through with a lot of the stories. Those will be rolling out on our website and in our print magazine around the middle of. Let me go back to the Mia Rainey Home Depot story for a little bit different reason. That story has been told in several formats, in several ways, and in several places on, I'm going to say, the Compliance Week media empire. So, for instance, I interviewed Mia prior to the Compliance Week 2022 conference about that story. She spoke about that at the conference and very interesting, very powerful. And Aaron followed up with a article that went online and it may be in the print magazine. So I really wanted to use that as a way to ask you about the various types of media that Compliance Week has. And so I mentioned the podcast series we did recognize. That was a special podcast series, nevertheless, a podcast series prior to Compliance Week, obviously the conference. Now we have an online article and hopefully we'll have our article in print. But really, I don't think we've really explored all of the different types of media that Compliance Week avails itself of in communicating to the greater compliance community. Yeah, we're very fortunate that we have the audience that we have and also the means to communicate with through various platforms. Obviously, for us, it's always a huge benefit to have people show up to our events and interact with us directly and really get that real-time learning. But we do also acknowledge that there's a lot of limitations to attend and really get the full Compliance Week experience. So we do as much as we can to be able to offer that to the individuals that might not have been able to make it to an event, that might have the podcast because they were out that week or whatever it may be. For us, a good compliance story is a good compliance story, and we'll tell it as many different ways as we need to tell it. And we're happy to do that for us. It's always really good, and we get that feedback from our users that, hey, I really enjoyed when I consumed this case study as a training module or when I took part in it as part of an immersive learning at my company, not so much reading it 
as an as, as a story. But compliance Week, it's, it's a lot more than just a news outlet and really just a, an editorial product. And we try to leverage that as much as we possibly can because it's the price of admission. That's why we are a membership offering and we are able to justify the value of the Compliance Week membership is that you are going to get this content. You're going to get it in a variety of forms. And the hope is that one of those forms will be what's best for our members for them to consume it. Kyle, you've also got some upcoming events in the fall of 2022, one live event, I believe, and two virtual events. I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about those. Yeah, we have our next conference will be virtual and that's coming together in September. That's going to be our ESG event. So this is the second year that we're doing an event dedicated solely to ESG. It's a two-day event and yet still at the end of it, I think we'll feel like it just wasn't enough time because there's just so much to talk about with that subject. So that's coming together in September. Right now we're looking toward late October as well for our return to Europe for the first time since 2019. So really excited to get back there. We're going to be having our annual Compliance with Europe conference in Edinburgh. So that's always a really great way for us to get in tune with our international audience. Many people don't know Compliance Week is actually our parent company is based in the United Kingdom. So we do have a lot of European touch points and a lot of reputation among the European compliance audience. Great for us to be able to have that event every year and be able to offer that those touch points with the European users of Compliance Week. And then we'll be back virtual again in December for our third-party risk management conference. And this is our second third-party risk management conference of the year. We typically do hold two of these a year when we are in the normal conference mode because there's always so much to talk about with TPRM. We had our first one in June in Chicago. So this next one's going to be virtual to make it more accessible to a wider audience. Some of the stuff we talked about in June that I'm sure will be back on the docket will be obviously a lot of the third-party risks and confronting the current geopolitical tensions that exist, especially with sanctions on Russia, but also a lot of talk about how it's affecting ESG and some of these other areas where there's a lot of demand right now and what that means to be able to not only get the message to your own employees, but to get the message to your third parties, their third parties, and so on down the so Kyle, let's let's turn to, if not my favorite segment, one of my favorite segments, and that's, of course, where we try and serve, solve many of the world's problems, but also get to talk about some sports. And we've had some interesting uh, sporting issues come up, and the one that, frankly, I've been thinking the most about from a compliance perspective, from a legal perspective, from a human perspective, and I have to admit, even from a football perspective, is Des- Deshaun Watson. And we had, we've gone through, he was, a sentence was given down by an impartial umpire. The NFL did not like the length of the sentence or the suspension, I should say. So they filed and before that appeal could be heard, the parties agreed to an increased suspension, originally a six game suspension and no fine to a 10 game suspension and a $5 million fine. I've been trying to think about this a lot from the compliance angle. And it just seems like to me, this was fouled up because I use that word because it's a PG podcast in every way possible, starting with the NFL and the Cleveland Browns. But I wanted to maybe ask you, maybe what are your thoughts, either from the sports reporter or more importantly, the compliance perspective? Are there some lessons that we can really talk about for our clientele, our readership, our listeners? Yeah, I think the former sports reporter in me would certainly go in a very different direction than the current compliance reporter in me in terms of of looking at this story. But it is fascinating nonetheless. It's not, sports news isn't for everyone, but there are a lot of examples of where you can take a look at the sports story and really draw some of ethics and culture lessons. And actually, we I think we had a piece on our website regarding the uh, 
a favorite of yours, the Astro sign stealing scan. There was a lot of ethics you did learn there. Lots. It happens. But with this Deshaun Watson story, again, it's always these things tend to be bungled from the public of viewpoint. And I, I think it's always more complex than it seems and everything like that. But the NFL itself, uh, there's it's just as an observer and just the way I've always seen the league, I think they sort of are, sometimes they feel like they're very bulletproof in the way they handle things. Like even if things go disastrously at the end of the day, the ratings don't go down. So what's the problem? And we saw this with the Ray Rice situation. We saw this with the Colin Kaepernick situation. All of these like PR nightmares for the league, at the end of the day, it never really hurts the league's bottom line. So therefore, they don't necessarily feel like they're ever in the wrong. But in this situation, wanted a harsher sentence for Sean Watson. They wanted him suspended for the entire season. And the judge had ruled out six games. So they ended up splitting the middle and going with the 11 games. So it is nice to see the leagues progressing in that way. There wasn't so much fight with what happened with Ray Rice or any of these other situations. But now it seems like the league is really waking up to the idea that its culture is on the line. As we look at what the generations behind us are paying attention to. That's one of the number one things is they want the things that they put their money toward to represent something, ideals. And I think the NFL has to realize that. And I think to me, that's where the, the culture lesson really comes in is you can't just be the league that shrugs it off or just says, whatever, it'll be fine because it's not always going to be fine. There's going to be a generation coming in after us that does worry about these things and is concerned with these things. And when they're not handled, they will make it a point to express that. And I think one of the, from the Cleveland Browns element of it, it reminds me a lot of, this is comparing apples to oranges, but Microsoft's acquisition of Activision Blizzard. Again, this is a, a company that they bought low on because they were embroiled in a toxic culture situation. And the Browns did the same exact thing with Deshaun Watson. He was embroiled in this scandal and the Browns were able to acquire him as a result of that. Those are the type of internal decisions that sort of need to be reconciled. And it's a balancing of risk versus reward. But it, these parallels do exist and there's a lot to be learned from it. What's nice is it plays out on a wildly open public stage with sports. So there's so much attention being given to these things. We don't really get that benefit with some of the what happens in the legal world is a lot of this needs to happen behind closed doors. If you pay attention and you really get to, to see some of the stuff open up, there's a lot that can be taken away and instilled in other areas. Now I'd like to turn to Tom Brady, one of my favorite players. For those viewing this, you will see one of my two Tom Brady, or both of my, two of my three Tom Brady helmets sit up on my shelf, Michigan and uh, classic New England Patriots. I also have Tom Brady signed, Super Bowl champion trophies in my outdoor gym. So, yeah, I'm a fan. He retired after the end of last season, after 40 days in a very biblical move, 40 days and 40 nights, returned to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But what I wanted to focus on, Kyle, was in the middle of training camp, he left for almost 10 days, I think, for personal reasons. And what concerns me and what I wanted to maybe hash out with you is, to be a successful NFL player, you have to have total focus, total commitment. And he spoke about that both when he retired and when he came back. And the, the commitment you have to make as a player. And I don't, I'm not sure that same commitment level still exists if you can in a preseason. I understand if there's an illness. I understand if you have a personal issue with your family. We didn't hear anything about that. In fact, we don't know really the reason 
And so my concern is that he may be wavering in the fullness of his commitment to be at the level he was before. Now I want to overlay that with the fact he's 45. At some point, Father Time is going to say enough. And that could we be heading for a catastrophic or serious injury, as you said, played out on the national stage because he's not the same player he was. He's not in the same condition he was. The the offensive line may be different, all of those things. And do you have any of those sort of concerns or it's just, no, he's Tom Brady, he's earned that and he's done it before. And until he doesn't do it, we're going to believe he can do it again. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily go to the he's Tom Brady, he's earned that path because at the end of the day, if you are an NFL player, you are under contract to meet certain requirements and no player should be exempt from that just because they are who they are. All these, uh, the rest of his team showed up to camp and they did what they needed to do and all that stuff. And it's not, I'm sure they'd love to spend time in the Bahamas as it's reported he was doing or whatever it is. But if you have a task to fulfill, you should be fulfilling that task regardless of who you are. That's just my opinion on that matter. But as a Boston resident who has closely followed the Patriots and spent some time reporting and covering the Patriots. This is not a new situation. It's never happened in the preseason, but we did see it with OTAs where later in Tom Brady's Patriots career, he started to skip those optional training activities and opted to spend some more time with his family. And he was very open about it. And he identified that this was a problem in my marriage, a problem in my being a father is that I was not around during the season. I had to respond to the needs of my family and spend extra time with them. And so, again, with the, just what we know, like you said, we don't truly know what happened. We understand that it was reported he just went on a family trip. At the end of the day, he does have that obligation to his family. And it very well may have been that pressure from that other side to say, hey, spend a little bit more time with us. I do think the fact that he did retire for that, what seemed like two weeks this offseason, shows that, yes, he's certainly, at this point, has started to push away from football being his life. And I think... At the end of the day, the Tom Brady on the field is always going to be the most competitive person out there and the one who's not giving too little or anything like that. But I think off the field, we're going to start to see more of the Tom Brady transitioning to his post-football career because it's knocking on the door. If that's not at the end of this season, then I can't imagine it goes much more than that. But the injury risk, that type of stuff will always be there. Brady was in the peak of his career and coming off the best season we had ever seen from a quarterback ever when he tore his ACL. And that's just the sort of risk you take in a sport like football. It's, it's all about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So he could be 45 or he could be 25. And sometimes it's just a matter of circumstance. You hope you don't see it. You want the career to end in a dignified manner and not in, in a way in which it's an injury or anything like that derails him. But I don't know. Me personally, I was uh, I was opposed to him coming back. I think you just you retire and you leave it at that and you go out with your head held. I thought the situation was really, really bungled from a PR perspective and a bit of a disappointment as someone who really closely followed his career and thought this ending is okay with me. And now we don't know what we're going to see. So for our last sports topic, I would like to take up Ichiro. The Seattle Mariner, Japanese, all-star, came to America literally in the middle of his career and had one of the greatest runs ever. And I wanted to use, and he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, first Japanese national to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I really wanted to use his career, Kyle, to, to maybe explore just true greatness in sports or genius in sports. We both, I think, seen players certainly have all-star years, have sustained greatness, I was trying to think of who I might compare him to that I've actually seen 
And I think for a period of time, Jeff Bagwell was pretty good, certainly not to the Achiro level. I saw Nolan Ryan and J.R. Richards was injured due to a stroke and it effectively ended his baseball career. But I watched Ryan pitch into his 40s with the Astros before he went to the Rangers. But I've always been fascinated with true greatness. And every time Mariners didn't come down to Houston very often during interleague play. And so I didn't get to see him very often, but I always went to see him. And the thing that struck me is he was the consummate professional. He scouted pitchers. He scouted the opposition pitchers. He scouted the starting pitchers. He scouted the relief pitchers. And he was prepared. And in batting practice, he would have the coaches throw, actually mimic the starting pitcher he would be facing that day so he could prepare. But maybe wanted to ask, who have you seen that you felt was really at that level of greatness and how you felt about watching them, following them? Or is it something different for yourself? Yeah, you know, I think for Ichiro and someone who was able to watch him play a little bit, I 100% agree that it's just a matter of the consummate professional. He was the type of player who was never trying to do more than what was asked in a situation. He didn't go up there swinging to hit a home run. He was so content to just hit a single. And that was his job. Is it was, he was the table setter in the lineup, and his role was to just get on base. And he was perfectly content with doing that in the best manner possible. And that's really what you want from that type of player. It's just someone who understands their role and understands what is being expected from them. I think for his being inducted into the Mariners Hall of Fame, it just seems like it's it was an easy slam dunk there. He meant so much to that fan base a lot of which has some Japanese roots because of the Pacific Northwest angle there. So, you know, it's really nice to see that tribute paid to myself as an observer and really seeing the consistency. I I was spoiled for the most part in a lot of my upbringing in this Boston area. Things were pretty rosy for me during my childhood compared to some of the childhoods of Bostonians past. Obviously a city with a lot of long history of sports struggling before a real dynastic last 20 years or so. So I've been able to see that on all fronts from all teams. The really the anyone basically on on the Patriots and the Bill Belichick era, you could really pull a bunch of names out. Those people who again they knew their roles, they knew what was expected of them. They weren't trying to do anything more. They weren't trying to do anything less. It's all about the team. There's a lot of players that come to mind. Obviously, your Julian Edelman, your Wes Welkers, these slot receivers that aren't necessarily. A Randy Moss, who's making these glitzy catches, but they're just grinding and getting the job done. For the Red Sox, I was a big Dustin Pedroia fan growing up. I think anyone around here would tell you the same. Just a guy who played with a chip on his shoulder, wasn't ever trying to do anything more than just giving his best on every single play. But that's an example of a guy who's, again, career ended a little bit, unfortunately, because of some of those injuries that caught up with him. But I think it would tell you he wouldn't have done it any other way. He played true to himself, and we were able to see that through. And I was a big Bruins follower growing up as well. And another one that comes to mind is Patrice Bergeron, another person that's just consummate professional, someone who always got the job done, knew exactly what was being asked of them, was more than happy to get an assist as opposed to score a goal. And those type of players are a, a dime a dozen, and I was, I've been fortunate to be able to have so many of them coming up in, in this Boston area and really to be able to idolize for what they're able to do and and what they're able to represent on the field, on the ice, on the court, whatever it may be. I think any of those people who, again, they know their role, they they know what's being looked for for, from them, and they just go out there and they do it with a smile on their face. It's it's always worth celebrating those type of people. Well, Kyle, unfortunately, we're near the end of our episode, for this episode, rather. So thanks for joining us. I am Tom Fox. I'm Kyle Brasser. Thanks again for having me, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of From the Editor Desk. 
I hope that you will check out the new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. It's an exploration of some of the top anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years or so. Together with Mark DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a deep dive into some of the top FCPA and other anti-corruption cases that have uh, percolated since 2008 or so. I know you'll enjoy it. It's a great wrap-up. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.